What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast, Chamath Palihapitiya, tech investor, former Facebook insider, and Virgin Galactic chairman on Tesla's road to the S&P 500. From day one, you have had this massive tension between the bulls and the bears on this company. And social media's rough road ahead. We have five companies that are sucking up all the oxygen. There is a huge incentive to legislate. Plus, Chamath continues yesterday's investment education with another bull case for SPACs. We need to level the playing field. We need to allow companies, more of them, to go public faster. We need to allow them to talk about what they're doing in a way where there's actually more transparency, not less. That interview plus CEO of United Airlines, Scott Kirby, on his industry's hoped-for recovery. Once we get past the vaccine and it's widely distributed, we'll quickly recover back towards 100%. Uh, But our guess is that's going to be, we're going to plateau at about 50% before we get to a vaccine. It's Thursday, July 23rd, 2020. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning. Welcome back to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, along with Joe Kernan and Melissa Lee again today. Becky's off. Today on the podcast, Chamath Palihapitiya. He's chairman of Virgin Galactic, the space tourism company he runs with Sir Richard Branson. And he's one of CNBC's and our favorite guests because he's not shy about any of his opinions, which is why we ask him about pretty much everything under the sun or more appropriately, in the solar system. Pali Hapatia held various roles at Facebook until 2011, and he went on to start his own tech venture capital firm that invested in the likes of Slack, Box, and SurveyMonkey. After he closed the fund, Chamath moved on to SPACs, or Special Purpose Acquisition Companies. These larger shell companies offer private, smaller enterprises an alternate route to the public market. The shell launches first to raise money and then takes the new guy public. And Chamath has debuted three SPACs so far, including two in April alone. Bill Ackman, leader of Pershing Square and, as of yesterday, sponsor of the largest SPAC in history, made the case for these cash shells prior to his $4 billion SPAC listing on Squawk Box. I think it's actually a much better process. It's much better for the issuer and it's much better for the shareholder because they get to make a thoughtful decision that's not rushed by the typical IPO process. If you want to know more about these investment vehicles, keep listening. Or for a more in-depth explainer, check out yesterday's Squawk Pod with Bill Ackman. It's a real spectacular. As I mentioned earlier, the investment community is interested in Chamath's opinions about pretty much everything. So this week, when Tesla reported its fourth consecutive quarterly profit and appeared on track to enter the S&P 500 after its shares gained over 500% in the last year, we figured that was a pretty good place to start. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin kicking off today's conversation with Chamath Palihapitiya. Tesla and, and really just the move that we've seen Uh, Does it make sense to you, and is it sustainable? Uh, It does make sense, and it unfortunately will be the status quo for a while, but I think it's important to understand why. In the year 2000, Andrew, there were 8,000 public companies in the United States. By the year 2020, there are about 4,000 and falling quickly. 
because of consolidation, M&A, and the massive spike in private equity. So what we've done is effectively shrank the investable universe by 50%. Meanwhile, the number of hedge funds have doubled, and the amount of money in the system has quadrupled or quintupled. So you have a massive supply-demand problem. And so when you have five companies that can predictably grow, what happens is everybody just throws their hands in the air and says, you know what, this is the easiest um, you know, schmuck insurance kind of trade to do. And so they pile into these businesses. So, you know, if we are really frustrated by the uh, amount of market cap, 20 plus percent in the big five, I think what we really need to do is figure out how to change the incentives for more companies to be public. I want to talk about that. And we're going to talk about SPACs in just a moment. You've been behind uh, some as well. Uh, and and there's some of the most successful recently. But let me just ask you about Tesla, uh, because they had their earnings last night. Uh, they beat, um, you know, the 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 bears would say they beat because they sold these tax credits. And how, how long are these ta- these credits uh, 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 going to be, you know, a sustainable business model? What do you say? You bought you, you, you bought into Tesla, bought into the debt a long time ago. I think this is a really important example of a much bigger trend that's happening in the stock market, which is that retail investors now have access to so much information that it's almost on parity with people that work in traditional investment organizations. And what we've seen is that's happened is that the quality of that analysis and the ability to see around the corner is as good and in many cases better than traditional investment firms and the way they view the problem. So from day one, you have had this massive tension between the bulls and the bears on this company. And the bulls basically saw a long-term trend around electrification and the bears tried to play with balance sheet mathematics. Of course, if I said, you can sell 90,000 cars but then if you negative sell 100,000, you've not sold 10,000. And you would say, what does any of this mean? You can use any convoluted logic to try to be short this stock. And what you would have done is just lost an enormous amount of money. And so what we're going to see now is that the stock is going to become part of the S&P 500. It is the leading edge when it comes to electrification and decarbonization. And here's the thing, Andrew, what the bulls will get right And what the bears will ignore from here is that this is no longer about cars, that that's the first wave of growth. And I think people are pricing in an evisceration of traditional autos and an enormous shift to EVs of which Tesla will get the disproportionate share. So now what is the bet? If you ask me as an investor who loves that company, it was in page four or five of their quarterly earnings release where they talk about the energy business. And they said a couple of interesting things. The first is that it was profitable. And the second is that they're also producing software now that allows effectively anybody to become a distributed utility. Now, think of that for a second. You are talking about one of the most predictable, reasonable businesses that have raised hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars of debt. And what Tesla is going to do with their battery packs and their software is all of a sudden allow each of us to be in the energy business as well. Again, people will get angry. They will not understand. They will try to push back and they will be wrong. And what's going to happen is that this stock is now going to represent the totality around decarbonization and sustainability. So it was really great to own this thing around cars for the first four years. I did it. I made a lot of money. But now I underwrite this company as a bet towards decarbonization, towards deregulated energy, and towards the ability for all of us to become our little micro utilities. What is that market worth, Chamath? I mean, I ask this because since the end of March, we've seen Tesla add about $200 billion in market cap. So the question is, how much of that was captured 
um, in that run and how much more is there on the energy side of things. And I'm glad you picked on, up on that because I think it was the second thing that Elon Musk said off the top of the conference call. He talked about that business, which really shows you where it is positioned in his mind when it comes to the growth of this company. I mean, to your point, and by the way, the way you frame it is exactly correctly. He has been consistently giving us the trail of breadcrumbs to understand this business. He had a quote unquote secret plan that he published on the web. Then he updated that secret plan and published it yet again. So all you had to do was just read it and put together a reasonable one or two pager to underwrite the investment. And, you know, that's basically what I did. I try to force myself in these big decisions to simplify things versus complexify them. And he told you, by the way, in this earnings release, the next big push is going to be around energy and energy deregulation. So what is that worth? Melissa, this is worth trillions of dollars. And the reason is because if you look at the debt stacks and the earnings potential and the regulatory framework that has allowed local utilities to thrive, it is measured in hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars. And if individuals can get the solar panels, buy the battery packs, and get essentially free software or low-cost software that allow us to collect the sun's energy and redirect it back into the grid, what you're going to see are utilities basically go upside down. And that was the class of debt that people would have told you is completely, completely the safest and basically would be, you know, guaranteed yield ad infinitum. And I think in the next 20 years, you're going to see examples where that's not the case. Chamath, though, let me ask you, to get to the numbers we're at now, you have to politely, you have to grow into these numbers, right? Uh, and so how much runway should an investor be giving? I mean, usually people say the investment community is looking out 12 months, 18 months, maybe 24 months. You know, to make the math on this work, you have to be looking out maybe five years, possibly a decade. Who knows what's going to happen between now and then? I mean, to some degree, I wonder how much you think of Tesla parallels, oddly enough, like a thing like Bitcoin, which I know you've, you've talked about over the years, because you have to buy into a really long-term vision. So you're talking about something that's really important, again, for the institutional investor, and I think less so for the retail investor. If you give the retail investor a five or 10 year investment horizon, I think many of them will take it because they're not in the business of, you know, uh, perpetual motion. They're not trying to go in and go out of stocks because they need to earn a management fee. So I do think it's very simple for people to actually have the discipline and underwrite a 10 year holding period. Now, for uh, institutional investors, one thing has changed, which is that rates have essentially gone to zero. And not to get, you know, sort of like arcane and in the bowels of financial modeling, but when your risk-free rate is effectively zero, you have to invariably look much further out down, down the line in order to figure out over what period of time will you capture a reasonable amount of earnings. So to your point, Andrew, when rates were at 6%, investors only needed to look 6, 12, 18 months out. But when rates are zero, you have to be looking out 5 to 10 years. And I think this is a lot of where the capitulation and frustration by some of the world's best investors have been. They have just refused to internalize the changing of the tactics that have to be employed in a zero rate environment. And for somebody like me, you could say, well, this is a naive tech person who hasn't been an investor over multiple cycles. Maybe that's true. But the one thing that I realized is that when rates are zero, you need to look five to 10 years for growth. And when you do, the reality is that this company has inflected towards multiple markets that are measured in the hundreds of billions and now trillions of dollars. And on a risk adjusted basis, I'd rather own that than a traditional auto OEM right. or a traditional utility. It's just a really good risk parity trade. 
Chamath, I want to pivot the conversation for a moment to SPACs. Uh, you, you've launched now uh, several, and you, I know there's a couple uh, on the way here as well. Uh, you've talked about them in the context of an IPO 2.0. How much of this, though, is an indictment of the IPO model? But at the same time, what does it say about transparency? Because there's a lot less in the SPAC model than there is in the IPO model. I actually think it's the exact opposite, and I'm glad you asked this question. Let's just talk about transparency for a second. When you go through a SPAC, what you, the CEO and the company, are allowed to do is actually take your time. You're allowed to take as many months or as many weeks or, frankly, longer if you want to, to educate the buy side, to educate investors, both retail and institutional, about your business. You're allowed to create a multi-year forecast for the business. You're allowed to sit there and walk them through all of the assumptions, do all of the stress testing with them. And essentially, instead of speaking at them, what happens is you have a conversation. And in that conversation is meaningfully more transparency. And you saw that play out firsthand with Virgin Galactic. It was one of the key things that I tried to do is basically demonstrate the value of transparency. And transparency is critical. And Aaron, the reality is that we are now moving away, Andrew, from a very, very different model. For example, the rules now on 13Fs are going to move where large hedge funds only have to publish what they own. And all of a sudden, you know, when you lift the bar, that's not more transparency, that's less, right? In fact, what we should do is actually force every single hedge fund to publish not just their longs, but also their shorts, and that would create meaningful more amounts of transparency and allow us to understand why are certain investors piling into certain companies or shorting others? Are they trying to manipulate? Is this about momentum? Or is this about some fundamental idea that we should all understand as well? So the rules are actually moving away from transparency, which is why things like SPACs are valuable. In terms of the traditional IPO model, let's be clear. The banks serve their customers and they do a great job. It's just that in the IPO, the customer is not the company going public. The customer are the hedge funds, folks like me, that pay them tens or hundreds of millions of dollars in fees so that I can use them for trading, so that I can use them for leverage, right. so that I can use them for a whole host of things, which they do incredibly well, and then they reward me with cheap stock. And look, I'll gladly take it. But the reality is what I'm telling you and what I'm telling our viewers and what I would tell all retail and institutional investors is that that game has to end and we need to level the playing field. We need to allow companies, more of them to go public faster. Let's get that 4,000 closer to 8,000. And we need to allow them to talk about what they're doing in a way where there's actually more transparency, not less. You'll have fewer of these you know, mind-blowing Tesla examples in terms of the frustration You'll have more investor support, and Elon and folks like him won't have to fight and push sand uphill. In fact, what it'll be is just a broad base of support right. that makes good companies win. Let me ask you about two other topics. One, Silicon Valley, which you know so very well, and also we want to talk some sports. But on Silicon Valley, uh, you know, next week, all of the uh, big executives are going to be well, virtually uh, testifying um, in, in, in Washington, if you will, in a virtual sense, including uh, your former boss, Mark Zuckerberg. And I'm curious what you think the outcome of that hearing is going to be. Um, it'll be performative theater, of which the outcome is uh, not much, to be honest. I think that everybody will be looking for their soundbite, not just the CEOs that are going to be testifying, but frankly, you know, the inquisitors looking to try to be on television. Um, and so the result will be, you know, nothing really. 
Um, I think the bigger lens with which to view big tech is the following. Um, we are at record high levels of debt, both domestically and internationally. We have five companies that are sucking up all the oxygen. They do that not just economically, but now as well politically. And in all of that, I think there is a huge incentive to legislate at a minimum to slow these companies down. At the middle ground, it's going to be to tax them more and make sure that they earn less. And the maximum would you break them up? Break them up. Chamath, would you break them up? Yeah. You would? Yeah. All it's four good for of them. competition. Yeah, it's good for competition. Look, we, they've all had a good run. And the reality is the incremental dollar of investment right now is relatively wasted inside these big companies. I wrote this in my investor letter. You know, two years worth of R&D from the big tech could have recreated the Apollo project. Two years of it. You know, instead we have random little features here and there and things that don't really advance, right. you know, uh, the causes that we but, all care about in humanity. So on the margin, so let, me, as let, me, let me just ask you, though, do you, do you believe, though, that, that those four companies have either created a monopoly? First of all, are they a monopoly? Do you believe they've either they've created that monopoly illegally or somehow maintaining that monopoly illegally? It's one thing to have a sort of a social policy of what you think the world should be. I'm curious, as someone who was a former insider in that in one of those companies, whether you think that that monopoly, to the degree you even believe it is one, is illegal. Uh, I don't think that what they've done is illegal. I don't think any of them have done anything illegal. Um, I do think that they have created monopolies. And I think that um, our lens with which we view companies like this have changed. And the lens is no longer solely about dollars and cents. There is a level of moral acceptability and I think that there is a level of moral responsibility. And by the way, this happened with broadcast. We realized that broadcast cable and traditional television, um, we realized this about newspapers, they had a role to play in the public discourse and in the body politic of running countries. And in that, there was more regulation and a changing of what was acceptable and not. And I think that these large companies now have to take their role on that stage and it's only an economic cost that they have to pay and also one of ego. But beyond that, if you're an employee, I don't think you'll be harmed. If you're a consumer, you won't be harmed. But if you are a shareholder, you could be harmed. And if you are the people that derive your ego from sitting on top of these companies, you absolutely will take a hit. And if you can rationalize that and become a, you know, uh, realize that it's in the greater good, everybody will be okay, I think. Chamath Palihapitiya, it's a much longer conversation. We hope to have you back so we can continue that debate. Maybe we should do it actually next week after uh, that hearing. Um, but uh, we will re we'll reach out to try to make that happen. Chamath, thank you so very much for joining us this morning. Next on Squawk Pod, United Airlines CEO Scott Kirby on the airline industry making it through the coronavirus. Every two to three minutes, the air in an airplane is being refreshed. Um, it really is a unique environment, unlike anything you see any, anywhere else. I mean, it's one of the safest environments that you can be in. We'll be right back. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones, from powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY, a big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. 
I'm Joe Kernan along with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Melissa Lee. Becky is off today. This is Squawk Pod. Does the coronavirus have your travel plans grounded? United Airlines reported this week what the company described as its most difficult quarter. The carrier said it lost $1.6 billion during 2020's Q2 and saw revenue drop 87% as the pandemic grounded air travel to a virtual halt. But United expects its liquidity position to improve and is forecasting a lower daily cash burn rate for the third quarter. Isn't that a scary phrase? Burning money. Still, a recovery in air travel is being challenged by a spike in coronavirus cases around the U.S., as well as quarantine orders from travelers arriving to certain states like New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and elsewhere. We heard from United CEO Scott Kirby on this turbulence and a lot more. CNBC's aviation reporter Phil LeBeau kicks off that interview. You'll hear Joe, Andrew, and Melissa as well. Let's start first off. We talked about the numbers, a massive loss for the second quarter. No surprise there. But what's the state of the business right now? What are you seeing and how either optimistic or concerned are you about where things are with passenger levels? Look, one of the strengths of United going through this has been to be neither optimistic, concerned, pessimistic, uh, to be focused on being realistic about demand. I think that's really important in a crisis, and it's served us well so far as we've gone through this. Uh, the pandemic has developed really since late March, very close to what our expectations were going to be. Uh, and it continues to develop in a way that we think is consistent with, with what we've been planning for. And, and because of that, we were able to match our capacity down 88% to the revenue down 87%. Uh, but also by real, being realistic, we found opportunities. Our cargo revenue is actually up 36% during the quarter. Uh, and so that realistic approach has allowed us uh, to really uh, take do the best that's possible in a really tough environment. We expect that demand is, it has taken a step backwards here in July uh, from where it was, was in the middle of June, uh, but it seems to have bottomed and we expect we're kind of back to where we were in late May uh, and the demand will start to gradually recover once again as we get through the rest of the year. We're down 72 to 74 percent as an industry relative to the same time last year. Do you expect us to be in that range, let's say, for the rest of the summer into the fall? Do you expect it to come back to 50 percent? What's your internal projection at this point? Well, nobody knows for sure. And so we're trying to focus on staying flexible and adaptable to what the data is, is actually telling us. And, you know, you're looking at the TSA numbers, which is the number of passengers. But it also, by the way, includes the number of employees, airport employees, airline employees that go through. So we really focus a lot more on the revenue because that's the best measure of demand. And, and unfortunately, it's down even more than your 72%. Um, it's down more at the moment, more like 83%. We think there'll be a gradual recovery in that. Uh, but we don't expect it to get anywhere close to normal until there's a vaccine that's been widely distributed to a large portion of the population. And, you know, it's a guess. Nobody knows for sure. But our guess is that revenue will get to about 50% of what it was in 2019 in a pre-vaccine world. Once we get past a vaccine and it's widely distributed, we'll quickly recover back towards 100%. Uh, but our guess is that's gonna be, a, we're gonna plateau at about 50% before we get to a vaccine. Okay, so let's use that as a baseline. You've got, roughly speaking, $16 billion in liquidity right now. You plan to have more than 18 billion by the end of the third quarter. Is that enough to get you through not only the third and the fourth quarter, but the first quarter, which is notoriously the slowest part of the year for the airline industry? Or do you think, hey, look, there's a chance that the airlines are going to need more direct help from Washington? 
Look, I'm highly confident that we can get through the pandemic, given the $16 billion we've raised since it started, the fact that we're going to end with $18 billion uh, of liquidity. Uh, unfortunately, it's going to require difficulty. Um, you know, we've sent out 36,000 war notices to our employees, and that's a last resort, uh, something we absolutely would have wanted to avoid um, and have taken every step we possibly could to avoid those. But if the crisis is going to last as long as we think is at least possible, uh, we're going to have to reduce the size of the airline. Uh, it's going to be for until until there is a widely available vaccine. Uh, and because of that, we're going to have to reduce employment. So I am confident that we can make it through the crisis without any more funding. Uh, but it's going to also have an impact on employment. Scott, um, I'm wondering, you know, because the longer the pandemic goes on, the, the deeper behaviors that we've learned during the pandemic set in, things like uh, remote working, Zoom meetings, et cetera. So do you, do you really expect that post-pandemic, post-vaccine levels will, in fact, return to 100 percent? Or are there certain structural changes now that you think will carry forward even after there is a vaccine in place? Well, it's something a lot of us are spending a lot of time talking about and thinking about. At United, we're trying to stay focused on not being too prescriptive of forecasting exactly what's going to happen because the reality is none of us know but my personal opinion is uh, that at, while this is good it's not nearly as good as being there with phil at our network operating center in chicago uh, and we are social creatures and united is about connecting people and uniting the world uh, we went through this 20 years ago when video conferencing first started and everyone thought oh, it was going to decimate business travel and did exactly the opposite if anything it helped uh, grow business travel because we need to be there in person and my guess is that uh, there'll be a it'll take time it won't happen immediately uh, but the first time you know a business loses a corporate account to a sales team that took a team to dinner instead of doing a zoom call uh, they're going to be back out on the road there was a great commercial from united airlines it's 20 or 30 years old that you should go look up on youtube uh, but it ends with uh, i'm going to see that friend we used to do business with a handshake face to face now it's a phone call and a fax. Get back to you later with another fax, probably. Ben, where are you going? To visit that old friend who fired us this morning. United, come fly the friendly skies. And I think that that commercial from 20 or 30 years ago was true then, and it'll be true in the future. Um, and that, you know, a year or two after the pandemic is over, uh, we will be back to travel as normal. But we're not going to count on that. We're going to have flexibility um, and see what actually happens. Scott, you know, the expense side of things is, is one way to try to deal, obviously, through, through, you know, lower staffing. But on the revenue side, I, I just have a suggestion, and it reminds me of the old days, too. I, everybody right now is saying, you know what, I'm going to go see a friend, but I want to drive. You know, it's, it's 13 hours. Uh, I'm bringing the kids. They're like four and six, and we're really looking forward to it. Okay. They haven't done that in a while. After they do that, they're going to say, I'm never doing this again, and I, 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 I'm willing to pay yeah. more to go on a United flight. Can't, don't you think you need to raise prices as an industry, to, uh, given the new realities? Um, I know it's hard in a, in, a, yeah. in a slow period to raise prices, but it just seems like it's worth more than what you're charging. It's the same as it was 20, 30 years ago to go to a lot of places. So isn't that just coming, that it's gonna, prices are going up? Well, look, I, I, thanks for the question. And I'll take a slightly different tact on it, which is to say that what people I don't think is clearly understood yet, and it will help with confidence and with demand and will help with the economy, frankly, is for people to understand better the uniquely safe environment that an aircraft is. It is inside, 
but it is unlike anything that you experience anywhere else. It's not like being in a restaurant or an office building or uh, even a hospital for that matter. And it's because more than anything of the airflow and air filtration where the air comes out of the ceiling and it's designed to go to the floor uh, past the passengers um, and into the ventilation system where it's then re recycled through HEPA grade filters and mixed with 50% of fresh air from the outside. And every two to three minutes, the air in an airplane is being refreshed. Um, it really is a unique environment, unlike anything you see any, anywhere else. I mean, it's one of the safest environments that you can be in uh, indoors. And, and I think that is the message we need to get out more uh, to help with confidence. And then pricing will follow whatever demand is going to be. Uh, but getting consumers and the public at large to understand uh, the incredible things that happen on board airplanes for safety, and you combine that with mask wearing and all the cleaning regimens that we have, that aircraft really are a surprisingly, to a lot of people, uniquely safe environment. Uh, let's talk about that a little bit, Scott, because you have an enhanced mask policy that you just announced within the last hour, essentially saying, you don't wear it, you won't fly. And that's not just yeah. for being on the plane. That's any United area, the concourse, uh, a frequent flyer lounge, whatever it might be. Are you seeing much resistance in terms of people to the current mask policy? Is that the reason you put out the new one? Uh, we're seeing very little resistance. The vast majority of our customers and employees agree with the mask policies, applaud the mask policies. Uh, you know, United, I'm proud of the fact that we've been a leader. We were amongst the first companies, not just airlines, but companies in the world uh, to require a mask. And that was back when um, it was still controversial uh, to be willing to ban customers that, that don't wear a mask. Uh, but we do see still places in airports in particular where while customers wear a mask on board the airplane because it's really clear that it's required, uh, they're not always wearing a mask in, in the airports. And so we're just extending that policy. Uh, we're really trying to close all the travel gaps, all the gaps uh, in the travel process. I talked earlier about how safe it is on board an airplane, particularly once the engines are running and all the airflow is going through the airplane. Uh, but we've taken steps to get the airflow working on the ground and this mask policy in the airport so our customers can feel confident that from the time they will get out of their car to go into the airport, uh, they're going to have a safe experience. Hey, Scott, you've been around this for a while. Uh, this is not your first rodeo when you've seen a down market. You know how this industry operates. They start slashing fares and they can't control themselves. Now, you've held the line on fares in the second quarter. Are you going to be able to do that going forward, given the fact that there are more flights, more seats, and the competitors are slashing their fares? Yeah, look, this is unlike anything any of us have ever experienced. It's unlike anything that's ever happened in the, in the history of, of, of aviation. Uh, my guess is pricing is going to go lower uh, for the short, short term. All of the normal metrics that we use, yield, RASM, load factor, uh, in this pandemic are a little bit irrelevant. Um, you know, unfortunately, the most important metric right now is cash burn. And I'm proud of the fact that United, uh, amongst our large peers, uh, is doing the best on that front. I talked earlier about being real realistic. That's helped us get to that level. Uh, I also think we'll be the first to get the cash flow break even um, and return towards profitability. Uh, but our focus really is on cash flow um, and cash generation as we go through this, this crisis. And we at least are taking pretty aggressive steps to match our capacity to demand and, and to really be looking out 60 days and as we see changes, look, we saw changes in, at the end of June and beginning of July as the pandemic exp expanded and as quarantines came into place. And we've already taken steps, and you'll see more steps uh, to adjust. So being quick to adjust is the biggest thing we can do. The pricing is going to be what it's going to be, uh, but taking quick steps to adjust is, is what's in our control. 
Scott Kirby, CEO of United Airlines. Thank you, Scott, for joining us exclusively on Squawk Box. Uh, guys, there you heard it from Scott himself. I mean, they do not expect to get above 50% revenue until vaccine is here. And once that vaccine is here, then they expect the full return or at least closer to a full return for the entire airline industry. Guys, back to you. All right, Phil. Planning a long trip, I'm telling you. I'm going to be so ready to, I'm going I'm to take my chances, I think, uh, after 14 hours in a car or whatever. I'm going to be like, put me back on the plane, just give me the mask, no middle seat, and I'll, and I'll, I'll take my chances. Uh, anyway, thank you. Squawk Pod, we'll be right back. When it comes to family vacations, there are a million different trips you can take. You can get your own... trip to Texas. Or if you prefer a vacation from your family, you can always get your own leave the kids with grandma Yay! trip to Texas. So go to traveltexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time consuming and difficult. That's where one travel comes in with one travel. You'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. That's the show for today. Thanks for listening. Squonk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Thanks to Melissa Lee for sitting in again this week. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, subscribe to Squawk Pod. We're on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen. Into Twitter? Add us. Our handle is Squawk CNBC. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. No matter what you're a fan of, Texas has the trip for you. There's the trip to Texas and the trip. Or maybe you're the kind of fan who'd prefer a trip to Texas or a trip. Either way, go to TravelTexas.com slash get your own for the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours.